In the late 60s to early 70s, the mission was a melting pot of cultures. Latinos, Blacks, Asians, Samoans, and Irish lived together in the very working-class neighborhood. Samoans and Pacific Islanders began migrating to the city more than a century ago, drawn by jobs and educational opportunities, while establishing roots in the southeastern part of the city to work in the now-defunct Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard. In San Francisco, the majority of the Samoan community lived in public housing. Both the Valencia Gardens and our mystery projects were located in the mission, which added to its unique diversity. As a result, the melting pot gave many the opportunity to befriend people from outside their culture. Meanwhile, in 1969, the Real Alternatives Program had established its roots in the mission, where many young people learned how to organize and advocate for their community. Out of the many youth who rap introduced to the social justice movement, a young Samoan teenager, Fili Sala, emerged from the Emunio and rap as a leader. Fili Sala, who proudly represented his Samoan roots and also worked on behalf of all San Francisco youth, became the first president of the Mission Area Youth Council. Known as El General de la Comunidad, the general of the community, Philly went on to become one of the most outspoken and compassionate leaders until his passing in 2011. There is a long line of Pacific Islander women who also emerged as leaders in the 1970s, including Leah Tuasosopo, the first woman activist of the Pacific Islander community. In 1972, Samoa Moa Samoa was established as the first and only Pacific Islander community nonprofit agency that was fully funded by the city. The late Loviani Sila, a Tongan woman, was an advocate, a leader, and the voice of the Tongan people in San Francisco. In 1991, Sulu Balega, who dedicated his life to public service, was instrumental in the founding of the Samoan Community Development Center, providing much-needed services for San Francisco Samoans. These first elders of the Samoan community shaped and paved the way through advocacy work, commitment, and passion, which inspired future generations of Pacific Islander activists, advocates, and leaders of today. In this extra of the Rama Blueprints, we speak with John Nauer, who was trained at RAP under the tutelage of Mitchell Salazar. He reflects on his life's journey, the obstacles and the hurdles that helped shape his life while contributing to his own transformation and commitment to fighting the good fight for the betterment of all people and more recently concentrating his efforts to the Samoan Pacific Islander people. Good morning, John. Good morning, Talofa. Buenos dias. Nice to see you. Likewise. John, we've known each other probably over 25 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think we met at RAP, the Real Alternatives Program yes. in San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came about and who John Auer is? Wow. First generation, the youngest of six, but I also have other brothers and sisters who are younger than me that I met later on in life. Grew up in Baby Hunters Point, primarily up on the hill there. Also had time in Western Edition, as well as Visitation Valley or Sunnydale and the Mission. And as a young person, didn't really know any much about community, didn't even know about the struggle. As a young person growing up where I grew up at, I didn't really know that there were such things as community organizations and that people were struggling. I, I think my mother did a great job on keeping me from seeing that because she always gave us love and really 
attended to our needs. So I really didn't understand that until I came to work for RAT. And like I said, it was during a time in the 80s when there were conflicts between Latinos and the Samoans in the mission. And it was really by accident. Miguel Galdamez and Sally used to hang out at Pasita Center and work out and play basketball with us. And it led to them asking, hey, we're looking to hire a Samoan to help us kind of quell and mediate a lot of this violence that's going on between the Samoans and the, and the Latins at the time. That was around 85, 86, 87, but really like 86. It, it, the crack was just touching down. I was becoming a thing. But at that time, people weren't really shooting back then. We always knew Latino brothers used to like stabbing people, right? Samoans always want to knock somebody out. So, but at that time, it was really not a lot of gang gun violence. You might have had a knife here and there, but a lot of fisticuffs or anything else that people could get their hands on. What was the root of the conflict at that time you know, between the Samoans and the Latinos? It's funny. A lot of it stemmed from, just to be honest, I don't know, is maybe not understanding each other's culture. But a lot of times it was just how people look at one another. During that time, the Cholo scene was still in the picture. A lot of Latin brothers are proud. They give you that look. Most Samoans not knowing, they thinking, you know, oh, he's looking at me dirty. What you looking at me like that? But to me, a lot of that was just not understanding each other's culture well enough and how people were that led to people saying, what's up? And then folks saying, what's up back to each other at that time? Because for Pacific Islanders, we're all damn near related. And a lot of us couldn't really, especially the males, it was hard for us to date Pacific Islander or Samoan females because, you know, you end up getting beat up by your parents because you're related. So a lot of times we look outside, especially in the mission, because there were a lot of parties going on at that time. You're talking about low riding time. There was a lot of stuff going on. What did it look like back then? Oh, it was totally different. I mean, back then, the cruising down 24th Street every Friday and Saturday nights, that was like you wanted to be in the mission in the 80s, especially the mid-80s. Leading up to when the 49ers won a Super Bowl in, what, what was that, 90 or 89? But even before then, right, during the 80s, it was really rocking then. That's when the low-riding scene was really big in San Francisco. So, like, Mission was the center because during that time, a lot of people were, used to go down to uh, Fisherman's Wharf or up there uh, by the Palladium on Broadway. But then that scene kind of got watered down by the police. So a lot of more folks were starting to come more into the communities and mission because of the low riding and the cruising nights because Fridays and Saturday nights and it always used to lead from 24th and then it goes up to 29th and then it goes all the way up to 16th Street and then it used to end up at La Raza Park. So that was like the mecca of if you wanted to hang out, you wanted to be around and see who's who's. All right, you want it to be there. And, and like I said, for Pacific Islanders, especially a lot of Samoans, because we interacted with a lot of the Latin brothers and sisters, but also to the blacks, because the mission is very unique because you had two six, right? Or the Bernal Dwellings, what they call it. We call it two six projects. It's right in the heart of the mission right there, right? And then also you had over there on 15th Street where you had the VGs, right? Valencia Gardens. So having those two communities and also Patrol Hill being up at the hill, the mission was actually a melting pot for diversity between the blacks, Samoans, and Latinos, right? And then also you had the Pinoy brothers and sisters uh, south of Market that lead all the way up down the 14th and 15th Street, right? It was a melting pot. And for us, those days too, you were able to have those little private parties at the gyms, Presida Center, or wherever, you know, you could have a party at. But it was a very special time of engagement. You had the carnival at, during those times. It wasn't as big as it became, but you had the 24th Street Fair. 
That was a big event. Brought all the people. Yes, single de Mayo. They started, we used to have it at the Rasa Park before we moved it to Dolores, before they moved it to City Hall. And then it actually came back to the mission. So if you wanted to see a lot of people, a lot of different people, and see what San Francisco really represented, you had to be in the mission. Right on, man. I think about what that vibrancy was about. And the reason I ask about the conflict is because oftentimes when conflicts occur, it could be for the smallest thing that erupts into the largest thing. And I think that's a good analysis to talk about not understanding each other's culture. As a Samoan young man, you begin to immerse yourself into community work. What triggers you to start saying, you know what, I don't think I want to run in the dark side. I might still dibble and dabble, but I want to help my community. When did that aha light bulb moment, what happens at, as a younger man? Well, like I said, doing the work at RAP it opened my eyes that the struggle was real for Samoans and Pacific Islanders, but there were really no programs addressing our issues. And that's why RAP really, for me, meant a lot. And then also that's that relationship with Mitch, right? I think Kim touched on it. Mitch got a lot of flack working with him and the Blacks. And the same thing when Mitch opened those doors to the Samoan community. Mitch got a lot of flack, even from the board of rap at right. that time, of being, hey, you're doing too much for the Samoans. What's going on here? We have our own issues. And for him to take the stand, that's what opened my eyes. I was like, wow, man, we really don't have nothing to address the needs and the concerns of the Samoan or the Pacific Islander community in San Francisco. And I guess another thing is just part of my maturation of becoming an adult, because one thing for me was that even though I was in doing community work, remember now, most of my friends and I'm from the circle of the who's who that were running in the streets. We had no borders for Samoa. See, one thing that we understood, is, and it's still, it changed now, but for us, we could go to any neighborhood because most of us grew up in the projects. We had ties and families in all the different neighborhoods. So I had relationships with all the different usos of who's who throughout the city. And like I said, growing up in the different diverse communities, I had black friends, Latino friends, just any friends. It could go anywhere, right? But my eyes was really open during that time, during the, when I was at RAP, and really saw the lack of resources and attention that was given to our folks. Like now, even now, nothing has really changed. Our population may be at the peak for Pacific Islanders or Samoans in San Francisco. At one time, we were at 40, maybe 50,000. You're talking about late 70s to mid 80s or 90s. Today is sad to say we're under 7,000 in San Francisco. Yeah, this is from, we've been doing our own research and gathering. We have less than 10,000 Samoans left in San Francisco, but yet we're in the top five of all the negative statistics. From incarceration to school dropouts to unemployment. I mean, you name it. So for a group of people who have less than 10,000 people in a city that's almost of a million people, and for me to be, like I said earlier, I like to say the word lip, lip massage because I don't really want to say what I want to yeah. really want to say. I'm now 54. I started working for RAT when I was 18. That's, you're talking about 85, 86. I've been hearing and seeing the issues that our community has had since my eyes were open in 1986. There has nothing been changed, man, since then. And then the sad thing about it, the less than 10,000 people that we have in San Francisco, 73% of our population live in low-income housing, the housing project. How is your community ever going to prosper? How are your kids ever going to be successful if already you're in the hood, you really don't want to go to school because that's not the thing, the struggle 
It's like coming out the gates, it's like, wow. I say to people all the time, I'm like, man, one thing I learned from rap, you have to get involved with politics. You got to get your people to vote. That's one thing I've always respected about the Latino community. Back in the mid-80s and early 90s, the Latins were still trying to come together. But what one thing they did is they started to organize, right? They started to help people get into office. If anything the Latin community learned that I learned that I'm trying to teach our folks, if you don't go and vote and if you don't get organized and put your people in positions to, that makes decisions or that creates policies, your community is never going to get the food it needs to eat. And that's what we're trying to do now. And it's so sad to say that the same issues we had back then, it's the same issues we're facing now. But the only difference is that, like I said, that we have less than 10,000 people and 73% of our folks live in low-income housing. And when I think about how you describe the three areas of where people have lived at, right? And I hear you use the word uso. It isn't just a term that you you throw out loosely, right? Uso is a much more deeper meaning. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the, when you said, and I had uso brothers in mm-hmm. almost every of those neighborhoods. The mm-hmm. Valencia Gardens, the Bernal 26 Project, what do you call them, 26? We call it 2-6. 26 Projects, mm-hmm. also known as Bernal Dwellings, yes. also before Army Street. Well, it was Army Street, but folks in the know-how always call it 2-6. I want to explore a little bit about that term. So what is that, the uso? What does that Uh, mean? Well, uso in our language means brother. So it's basically brothers in the Samoan language. But the uso, now more known for us, the short, is a term that got bigger in the penitentiary system. Anybody that knows Samoans in the penitentiary system or if Samoans, you call them oos. What's up, oos? You always hear the term, sub oos? But for us, when I use the word uso in relationships to another male figure from another ethnic group, that's the sign of real love and respect, right? Like, this person is my brother. That's my uso right there. But that's what it means in our language. So for me to use that in describing anyone else from another ethnicity or background, that means I got a lot of love and respect for that individual. And John, in your own individual development, what have been some of those steps you took to kind of work on yourself and at the same time working with your community? You you talked about voting, right? That's like a community push. But what about your own development? What has it taken to get you to this place? Just a lot of lessons learned, trials and error, like anyone else. I mean, I have my own skeletons through my life. Just seeing the struggle firsthand and also, too, living in what I would call a fantasy life. Because like I said earlier, I didn't really understand the struggle that the Pacific Islander, the Samoan community had until I came into the mission and started doing community work. And that opened my eyes up like, wow, what's going on here? But for me as an individual, the, the journey that I've been on, which is to me is basically schooling, working in the mission and having a lot of just people and all the lessons that I've learned in the mission and also too working in Bayview. I never worked with the Pacific Islander community until like, 2009, 10, I've always worked in the, in the Latino community or in the African-American community. Because for me, it was never about being Samoan or Pacific. For me, it was just people and this opportunity, and I needed to learn that. See, one thing I learned was that if you don't have something, you need to figure out how it's done so you can gain that knowledge and then apply it to your community. And that's basically what I've done. All the lessons that I've learned from working within the mission and that rap and being around the table with a bunch of great people over the years is the same thing in the Bayview Hunters Point. Because I always tell my people this, if the blacks and the Latinos weren't kind enough, 
right, to share the food or the crumbs they had on their table, we wouldn't have nothing in San Francisco. We've been left out. I said, think about all the employment opportunities. Think about getting into the schools. Think about all of the family services. We didn't get those from our people. We didn't get those from the city. I said it was usually from our brothers and sisters that are blacks and Latinos. And, and it's sad that, that we're attached to the API umbrella when we really don't have a relationships with the Asians. And that's always been the struggle for us. That the, A lot of my people believe that the Asians use our statistics to gain money all our negative statistics that I mentioned earlier. It's for them to get funding, and then they hire someone that looks like us, but our community really don't gain nothing. So for me, I always tell my people, don't hate on the Asians. Learn from them. Flip the script. Let's use their numbers, their millions of numbers, when we go after funding. Just like they use our negative statistics because we're under the same umbrella, we don't say we have 10,000 Samoans in San Francisco. We say whatever the population is for the Asian, the API community. We use it, but getting your people to understand because our people are big on reputation. Right. People of color, we're always like, oh, don't tell people our business or don't put our mess out in the street. I always tell my people, nah, you gotta learn how to play the game. The, the, this game, which is community, if we don't have the resources and if we don't have what we need in order for us to run programs, being a kind person and be wanting to help people ain't going to do you no good because you won't have the tools. So you got to play the game. But anyways, just understanding that we need to be able to learn and then apply it for ourselves. Like everything we're doing now, the steps we're doing, we're trying to build an array of services. And unfortunately, we don't have those resources to do it, but we're getting there. Well, John, I've been listening to you speak with that passion and compassion that you have for your people. And, and man, it reminds me of what Ray Alberon used to say to me. Socorro, there's very few people that can do this kind of work. It takes a certain person with a certain character and not a perfect person, he used to say. You know, we're all works in progress. And, you know, John, you mentioned previously that you had a few setbacks. What were some of those setbacks and how did you find the balance to do this work? You know, some folks call it the contradictions, right? Because I'll tell you, my journey, my road was not smooth. Back in the day when I was working tirelessly, you know, saving lives and placing community before me, I found the, the excuse to say, well, I work hard. I deserve to drink and party. And unfortunately, you know, John, I learned the hard way. Being diagnosed with cancer and realizing that the contradictions were killing me slowly. So I woke up found my way because I'm sure grateful to be present today. I'm 19 years sober, clean, and cancer-free. Tell me, John, how'd you get through those challenges? And who is John Nauer today? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, community work back then. You grind all week just to wait for Friday and Saturday night to come so you could go out and party your butt off. That was, we self-medicated a lot. We didn't understand about mental health issues. We didn't understand about self-care. We were about saving lives from Monday to Friday and then Friday night to Saturday, we became who we were, just straight animals, party animals. Yeah, definitely. Drinking, partying, getting high was the thing. We grew up in the era of cocaine, crack cocaine. Cannabis was big, but it wasn't really that big, right? Wow, it's sad to say you used to go to jail for smoking weed, you know, in the 80s, right? So just going through all of that. What changed know, for you? What changed for me was, wow, I guess was seeing a lot of people that was doing the work that I did. 
or that were in the community like either dying or going through rehab, just seeing that, because you don't really see it when you're living it because you're part of that environment. But for me, when I left rap, when I was outside the circle, because when I left rap, I moved to Biz Valley or Sunnydale after that. I was able to separate myself. Now I'm outside looking in. It was really eye-awakening for me. And then God has blessed me with many talents. Unfortunately, you know the saying, right? When you have too many talents, unfortunately, you don't become a master of one. We did the music scene there for a while. The music scene led me into the drug scene. And I bring that up because it's the same thing we're doing now with community work. For anything we understood, unless you become self-sufficient and not depend on the government for funding, none of this stuff ever is going to be successful. Because government funding only lasts while the current administration is in office. For those of us that are community, one thing you know this too, Sokoro, they only give you enough funding for you to come up with a great plan, right? But they never give you enough funding to make that plan become reality or successful. They always cut the funding as soon as your community figure it out. Oh, we had the greatest outreach model. As soon as we figured it out what they do, cut the funding. And then two, three years later, come back out with it, but they want you to establish something new. So I say to say this, and going back to what you asked, seeing people that did the same work with me struggling, seeing people die over the years, especially with the violence, the nonsense. Because when we grew up, I mean, shooting people daylight, broad daylight was not heard of. There was a certain code that people lived by. You never shoot at women or young ladies. Never shoot during broad daylight. You always kept your business. All the males knew. If you have issues, you'd either do it at night or outside the communities. But in the 80s and 90s, especially in the 90s, the loss of the family value within all communities. We all say we believe in God and that there's a creator, but yet we became animals. And to me, I was one of those people. I respect people's rights. And I think one of the worst things that ever happened to our world is when people started bringing up this abuse stuff. You know, for me, it's like this. I'm against anybody that that disciplines their kids to a point where they're damn near killing them. But as animals, at the end of the day, we're animals. If, you, if the animal is not disciplined and kept in check, they grow up to become animal animals. That's what our world has become. Our kids, the values. There's no more stability. There's no more laws or rules of regulation, shall I say. Code of conduct has totally changed. Why? Because there's no discipline. Why? Because we allow all our young people to get away with what we know was wrong and what we still know is wrong. And as a man, being the head of your family, how are you instilling those values in your own family and the younger generations? Because I know people still, they look to you for guidance. How are you bringing that forward from all the lessons you've learned and the teachings that you were taught? One thing I understood is that you can't force people to do anything, right? So if people want to learn, my thing is I always inform people. I'm here for you. I'm here to share any knowledge. Unfortunately for me, I can never get my nephews or males from my community to walk in that light. But fortunately for me, my nieces, right, who followed my journey and also got involved. You have Gaynor, Siatana now. You have Ursula and Siatana. You have Teresa Nauer, right? They follow my journey and actually got involved and they're leaders in their own right. But, you know, like I said, for our community, we really didn't have a lot of role models to look at. One thing about media, when you see yourself being somebody, it inspires you, gives you that self-confidence. So when you don't see yourself on TV, when you don't see yourself on the media platforms or hear yourself in music, right, 
you don't believe in yourself. You want to become everyone else except yourself. So for as Samoans and Pacific Islanders, we wanted to be blacks. We wanted to be Latins. We wanted to anybody, whoever we saw, we wanted to be. And we had this saying, like, I hate to say it, but, you know, we had a lot of us, including myself, we wanted to be Samoan niggas because we grew up in the projects. But people used to say, oh, you're just trying to be blacks. No, even the blacks don't like the niggas. Samoan niggas is a whole different category. But you have that in other communities, right? We wanted to be Samoan Samo Mexicans. We wanted to be Samoan Asians, Samoan whites. We wanted to adapt to anything else except ourselves. And now finally, we have maybe, what, one or two people that's now making movies, a few artists. But you see the growth. Our enrollment in education institution in college was less than 1% for the longest. Now I believe we're almost at 1%. But that's been a struggle that we've had getting these young people like my nieces and them and having them getting into college. We planted that seed 20 years ago. And now we actually have a whole, there's like a little system now that young Polynesians understand now. There's a lot of, people are trying to hand out scholarships for our people to go to college. So now there's that pipeline that we're able to send young people into these colleges. San Francisco, speaking on the education, we passed our first Samoan initiative, Samoan initiative in the San Francisco Unified School District, the first ever in America. So now we have a pathway. This year, we just opened our first dual language for our pre-kindergarten population. Now we have a pathway from pre-kindergarten, hopefully by the grace of God, all the way up to college. City College offers free education here in San Francisco. We're trying to do the same thing at the state level. So we actually have a pathway. Can you imagine? Education is the foundation to a lot of us, right, to the right and wrong, right? So now we have this in place. We've been very intentional in this body of work, starting from rap. Like I said, a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, very intentional, very intentional. Good thing I learned from the mission in my time at rap. If you don't have the right people in the right places, you're never going to be able to do it just because you look Samoan. If you're not from San Francisco and went through the struggle, you won't understand how it is to be in San Francisco. It's the same thing in the Latin community. If you didn't grow up in that specific area, you could be Latin all you want. But it doesn't mean you're going to think like me and understand what we need to have happen. So now we're trying to put the right people in the right places. We have our first commissioner, our first elected commissioner. Who is that? Faunga Molina. Okay. And they're trying to recall him. Our first damn elected official (laughs) and these haters now are trying to recall him because they say, oh, it's budgetary stuff. No, really? So they got all this stuff, but they sugarcoated with budgetary stuff. We were intentional in helping him get in because I understood for years, like I said, the same way that city government here has been misogynist with their lips. And, oh, we feel so sorry for you people. Oh, we want to help you people. At the end of the day, we don't get crap. I was 18. I'm 54 now. Nothing, nothing has changed. Unless you get the right people in the right places. So this young man with school, when I found out, like, oh, my God, we're like one of the highest dropout rates. We're always behind the blacks and the Latins. Then you have us, but we don't even have that many people here. Another thing I saw over the years, the opportunities that was made for Latinos, Asians, and blacks, the city hiring those people. If you don't have your people in these, if you don't have people in the right places, you can't make things happen because we could be the greatest advocates. We could organize our people, but if your people are not in these positions, they won't have the drive to make it happen. You can have a good heart, but if it ain't your people, at the end of the day, people are biased at the end of the day. We could say, oh, I'm, I'm diverse, I'm open. No, at the end of the day, and for me, yeah. I was one of those idiots, right? 
I say idiots because I was truly about diversity. I hate, even today, it's hard for me to say when people say, oh, you're Samoan or Pacific Island. I'm like, dude, I'm not about Samoan and Pacific Islands. I might be Samoan and Pacific Islands. I'm about people. But for some reason, society makes you racist. Society makes you, it forces you to get into the corner. We only use the word diversity to hide our racism for one another. Because at the end of the day, when you're sitting there and you get upset, you're going to call somebody whatever words. You know what I'm saying. But the reality is San Francisco. But see, that's what San Francisco is all about. It professes to be a progressive and it's diverse city. But at the end of the day, San Francisco is one of the most racist city in the world. If you look at all of the exodus from the different populations, from the blacks to the Latins to, to the Samoans or the Pacific Islanders, San Francisco is about one thing, money. If your people are not bringing money to San Francisco, you got to get the hell on out of right. here. When you talk about mentors... For yourself, who has been a person that inspired you or group of people? Someone that you can say has been a person that has helped guide you or people that have guided you. Who would you identify as those people? I think it starts with my mother. My mother, Ani Retta, Heather Nauer, because my dad left us when I was three years old, right? So growing up around my mother and just seeing her over the years sacrifice for her kids, and I think that's what really shaped me to be the person. I saw three men over the years as we were growing up came to offer a hand of marriage to my mom. She refused to marry or be involved with another man because of us, myself and my two sisters. My dad took my two other brothers when he left Samoa at the time, American Samoa to come to America. But her being not only the mother, but the father figure. My mother was a beast. And what I mean by that, I had my uncles, the Matais in the village. I, I was young, but still, I could remember. She would not, she would stand there with her machete and be like, if the next person that crosses the line of my property, I'm cutting them up. And she was no joke. And then the work that she did, she was actually part of Samoa Samoa with Auntie Luma Tuya Sopo. That was actually the only nonprofit that we had in the city. But that the most of their work they did was w working with the seniors. Yeah. And see, that's why, like every Friday they had family night. So we all of the different seniors that were part of the part of that organization would bring their kids, and all of us would come together and be under the roof. She was the main person that embedded that to me. When I came to rap, I was very fortunate. I had besides Mitch, I had a lot of great mentors in the mission. And the reason why I didn't mention people, because I'm very bad with names and I'm embarrassed, <laughs> right. but I was very fortunate to have people that weren't Pacific Islanders be very influential in actually molding who I ultimately became. But in my community, like I said, I looked up to Auntie Luma Tia Sopo. He's more uncle, big brother, because he was the go-to guy for the city when they needed someone to quell or if there was any issues or pertaining to the Samoan community. They would go to Sulu because he had worked for the city and worked in that circle of folks. And then Sulu would come to myself and Cedro, Idencio, Jeff Balenga, and others in Simi in the community. And then we would do all the footwork. The only thing is that I wish it was that he would have taken us under his wing and molded us and developed us because he had, he was one of the inside people. Sulu was like, he was the man. It was unfortunate he didn't get an opportunity to actually mentor and really help shape us. But I guess there's a reason why everything happens. Those are the folks from my community that I remember as well as in this work and that molded me to who I became. But my mom, to me, at the end of the day, I get my spirit and I get my 
who I am from her because I saw the sacrifices and she was never about herself. Even though she didn't know what blacks and Latins and other ethnic groups before we came to America, she treated everybody the same. And that's what made me who I am. And that's why I get really offended when people say, this is John from the Samoan or PR community. I'll be like, the reason, when I see people say it, I'm like, man, y'all need to cut that out. I'm John Nauer. Stop labeling us. But anyways. John, I know in your lifetime and the sacrifices that you have made and commitment to the work, where do you find yourself now? I'm a jacker of all trades. I'm a cut and paste guy. I learn from you, I learn from you, I learn from you, and then I bring it together, add my own little twist to it. We got four organizations. We got the South Pacific Islanders, we got All Islanders Gathering as one, we got Tongans Rise Up, and we have Living in, Living in Peace, four organizations. And we formed this group called SALT. And SALT is basically the first initial S for South Pacific Islanders, A for All Islanders Gathering as one, what you call L for Living in Peace, and T for what you call it, Tongans Rise Up. But also SALT represents the ocean because we're the people of the Pacific Ocean. And for us, there's never no water. The ocean represents land. That's our bridge from our islands, how we hop from island to island, and also to here, the mainland. So we've always viewed the ocean like that. But for us, symbolically, saying salt, right, because of the saltness, because that's the separation of ocean water to river water, lake water, right, is that one has salt and the other one doesn't. So we call ourselves the salt organization, because for me, it's like if you bring, the city ain't going to fund us individually, but if we come together, and what we do is take each one of these organizations' expertise, and we create components out of those, and we form a model. You have a model consists of these people's strengths. So right now, we're rolling that out. And hopefully, by the grace of God, if God is willing, when we sit here again, hopefully within the next year or two, I'll be saying we fully funded, and the city finally gave us the $10.3 million that we asked for back in 2020. Well, I want to thank you because in watching the community and not just the Samoan community, but the communities of struggle that we have all worked so hard to help rise up. Thank you for your personal commitment to the work that you've done and that you continue to heal, that you continue to, to have the energy and the strength, that your family be blessed. And thank you for those words because the future generations of people that are going to listen to this, people have to find their walk, right? They yeah. have to find their walk. And I think when people listen to the stories of individuals like yourself, they're going to grab the piece that applied. Again, I thank you for your work and thank you for today and continued blessings and good health to you. Thank, thank you, you. Sokoro. Faftai lava. The extras of Rama Blueprints podcast are intended to help the listener with the deeper understanding of the people, events, and places that created the Mission District and the series as a whole. Thank you for listening to this extra. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people.